This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared this subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if this is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of sex? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. People have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the true facts come of their board to the and I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high position, Jack. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 178. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, we're continuing the historical quest uh, in the land of Palestine. Yes. I think the way we have it mapped out so far, this is uh, installment or chapter number five. Oh, really? Well, yeah, it's, this is recording three on this topic. Yes, uh, yes. This is our third consecutive recording, but yeah, chapter five, I guess. Uh, yeah, Every recording session is long and uh, ends up comprising about yeah, two episodes. So, you know, we're yeah. in chapter five right now. And uh, I think so far we've been taking a pretty uh, maximalist, uh, completist approach to yeah. the subject of night. We're certainly not rushing, rushing through it uh, no. by any means. Which I think is good because, like no. I said at the very beginning, there's no need to. We can go for as no. long as we want. It's our podcast. That's what's great about it. The Year of Palestine episodes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But no, I think this will take us. Uh, you'll probably people will probably be hearing this right around the holidays, well, or yeah, Christmas or the New Year, probably. And so. as you said, I mean, we are civil little jihad. It is a natural topic for us, and this angle on it, mm-hmm. I think, is a good fit. So, yeah, 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 not to be shrinked away from. So, I think we had maybe just started to turn the corner into the 20th century uh, last time when we left off, and. Uh, you know, I think we had talked a little bit about the Young Turks Revolution. Uh, yeah, the, fair the reign, the reign of Abdul Hamid II. Uh, yeah, who you know sort of uh, suspended the what the 1876 Constitution. Yes. Um, for 31 years, and you know eventually was overthrown in a military coup um, in 1908. We'd also touched a little bit on the brewings of uh, what was going to become the zionist movement uh last time and yeah. uh, you know right. towards about, the end yeah towards the end a little bit we talked a little bit about uh one of the you know uh, chief sponsors um of early jewish settlements in palestine uh baron edmund the rothschild and his son james before that we had talked about sir moses montefiore um sponsoring earlier settlements and you know, trying to get the right, uh, trying to get basically get approval by land from uh, Muhammad Ali, which uh, Muhammad Ali did not approve, uh, contra Wikipedia. 
But, you know, eventually these stirrings in Europe, coupled with the, you know, European Christian powers uh, engaging in various intrigues in Ottoman Palestine, uh, start to bubble up and bear some strange fruit uh, near the turn of the century. And I think last time we had also talked a little bit about one of the big uh, disruptive and seminal figures uh, in sort of like the, you know, the history of Palestine, who uh, was not a Palestinian, I think we can say. And that that would be the uh, Austro-Hungarian Jewish firebrand, Theodor Herzl, right? Yes. The uh, uh, kind of... Yeah, sorry. Uh, No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, this is definitely, I mean, he's certainly famous and like kind of his name is like synonymous with, with Zionism and the popular consciousness uh and i think you know at first i was kind of like leery to like you know go too much into herzl but i also feel like you know there's a lot of he's definitely an interesting historical personage and i feel like there's a lot of like you know uh, anecdotes and you know he there's just tons of like he has like a, like 2000 pages of diaries and stuff that really like chronicle an interesting period of history that uh, you know, might have, there might be some stuff uh, that people don't necessarily know about or kind of like, you know, interesting things that would be worth highlighting because he certainly is an mm-hmm. important uh, figure. Uh, you know, it's definitely, uh, we'll be, definitely we'll be kind of looking at some more uh, marginal or more peripheral people later on, I think, but there's certainly nothing wrong with uh, spending a little bit of time to get a picture of, of Theodore Herzl, especially in this kind of uh, this kind of history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and dare I say he's too colorful of a character to sort of like not include in any SJ narrative of this. Yeah, he's lo- he's larger than life, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of these uh, very just loud 19th century figures that I think sometimes we really like to focus on but once again as with so many things in the series i was a little bit surprised like i knew vaguely some things about herzl but uh just you know digging a little bit into his biography his life and his career i did indeed find things that were surprising to me that um for especially for you know the godfather of political zionism who uh whose ideas and activities and beliefs like would have such a massive transformative influence on uh, european jewry and then eventually the fate of the palestinian region itself so yeah i think it's good to just lay out a little bit uh and say who this guy was because then in subsequent episodes i think we are going to get more as more zionists enter the Palestinian region, we are going to have to talk about them more and their activities, their beliefs. And yeah, like, I mean, how they ended up uh, controlling the majority of land in this region. And um, yeah, well, yeah, that happens. uh, Yeah. And something called the Nakba, which, yeah, maybe we'll discuss later on in this. We definitely Um, will. We definitely will. That uh, that'll probably be its very own chapter, if not two or more um because that's that's an incredibly important you know inflection point uh that has uh, incredible relevance today uh but you know Herzl so who was this man uh that became the uh the standard bearer of modern Zionism well he was born in Budapest in 1860 in Pest specifically on the east side 
of the Danube. And um, he was born into a very, I guess, a relatively prosperous and very, this is important, very, very culturally assimilated Jewish family. Pretty oh, yeah. much, I he guess they were called... Wasn't- he wasn't uh, from. He wasn't. He wasn't from at all. You know, he was definitely uh, the on the fray side. Yeah, yeah. I guess his family are what were called in Hungary. Uh, I think. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but like neologs or neologs, who I guess split from a certain faction of what became kind of conserv, quote unquote. I think uh, either conservative or orthodox. I forget. There were specific splits in the Hungarian Jewish community that. You know, they they branched off in two slightly different directions. So the neologues were much more socially liberal and modernist and inclined towards integrating into sort of Austro-Hungarian society. And I think some of the more uh, the orthodox faction they split from was more about uh, speaking, you know, Yiddish and Hebrew and maintaining their own traditions, etc. So that's a huge dialectic going on in the late 19th century. Famously not a fan of of Yiddish, but yeah, most like the standard idea of the average Jew was like to assimilate, right? Like a that was lot a major of, current for sure. Yeah, especially was, in German speaking regions like Austro Hungary, Austria Hungary, and and Germany and Prussia, etc. Um, that's where you actually have by far, which is, you know makes the the later Holocaust kind of like darkly ironic in a certain way is that, you know, basically I think Jews were the most integrated and kind of absorbed into right, quote unquote, you know, Gentile majority society in German speaking countries. Um, And it was actually in Eastern Europe, particularly the Russian empire, where there was a lot more official and unofficial anti-Semitism. This is the era of the pogroms and, Maybe we we might touch on that in some of our sources a little bit later about because that is important to, you know, I think it's much more well known in this whole grand narrative that Jews in Europe were facing increasing amounts of persecution around the turn of the century. And that certainly was a contributing factor to Theodore Herzl's popularity and the, the, the kind of, you know, he was offering a potential solution to the quote-unquote Jewish question that was so much discussed at the end of the 1800s. But before Herzl, it's also worth noting, I mean, there were a few rabbis and a few other figures that had proposed a Jewish settlement in Palestine, usually on a small kind of scale of like, we're going down there and building little kind of colonies, uh, you know, later probably, you know, called kibbutzes. But you know, just little tiny uh, communities, maybe outside of the walls of the major cities yeah. and stuff like that. And then it wasn't really when the, the the wealthy financiers got a little more involved in it. First Montefiore and then Edmund de Rothschild. Uh, Rothschild in particular was much more focused on a kind of technocratic development of these settlements when he started financing them around like the 1880s but i don't think even baron de rothschild um again i probably have to look through all of his diaries but he had a different more narrow focus on jewish settlement in palestine than the types of ideas that herzl would eventually come up with even well into like the early 20th century like herzl didn't feel that rothschild was like necessarily on the same page as him 
he wrote like yeah. in his diaries a lot like complaining that Rothschild like didn't get it because he was surrounded with like courtiers and you know he was so wealthy that he didn't understand like the urgency of Zionism or the urgency yeah. of uh yeah like just a an example of like the what we were talking about in terms of like the sentiment of the average Jew he talks about running into the chief uh, rabbi of Vienna uh Gudemann who um he you know kind of dissociated himself from from Zionism and and he comes up in the uh in uh Herzl's diaries he says uh ran into Gudemann on the street he accompanied me to the door of my house and opened up with gestures and tones of despair. Explain Zionism to me. I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. The idea like so this like get, I think gives you like a picture of how nowadays I feel like especially among like Zionists it would be represented that like Zionism is a core idea of Judaism. Like the idea it's always of been there not understanding since, Zionism, yeah. like, you know, a rabbi not understanding what Zionism is like, exactly. you know, like, but Herzl says, I won't explain anything to you anymore. Every word is wasted. He had some grotesque ideas. He would rather let himself be killed outside the Saiten uh, Tetengasla synagogue than yield to the anti-Semites. He will, quote unquote, not take flight and all the other old chestnuts. He spoke about the quote-unquote mission of Jewry, which consists in being dispersed throughout the world. This mission is talked about by all those who are doing well in their present places of residence, but they are the only ones. So this is the same kind of thing that he would complain about Rothschild, like these, you know, he would say like, oh, these people are well off, like they're doing well. And so they talk about this idea that, which was was common, that the mission of Jews was to, you know, be like a light to the nations or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, to be like dispersed in the world and to uh, help the whatever lands they were in. Right. So that was like yeah, being a diasporic yeah. people was like actually yeah, baked part of their identity. Rabbinic, yeah. Because, yeah. Baked into rabbinical Judaism, because that's another thing. I mean, before the purview, just a little side note, YouTube sort of auto suggested this 90s frontline PBS documentary from the 90s that was called like From Jesus to Christ. And, you know, it was about kind of like a scholarly look at like the historical Jesus and it was all right. Like some parts of it were all right and interesting, but it did talk a lot about, you know, the state of Judaism in Judea under Roman rule 2000 years ago. And it's sort of easy to forget or it just easy, a lot of people just don't know this is that, you know, Judaism, like the practices of Judaism underwent some relatively significant transformations from the time of King Herod and the Second Temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed in the 60s AD, I forget exactly what year, after a Jewish revolt, the Romans, mm-hmm. you know, sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and then exile, and then a lot of uh, the Jewish residents went into exile, which is kind of a process that continued for another few hundred years. But, you know, some of the scholars, like in this frontline thing, were emphasizing that you know, when you hear about in Judaism today, like there's different temples and synagogues like, oh, Temple Shalom or, you know, in every city where there's a Jewish community that back in Jesus's time, there, there was really only one temple, the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilt second temple. And that was like the complete focal point of the sort of the Jewish religion, which was also a lot more kind of heterodox and mixed with a lot of different tendencies back then. In like the New Testament times, I mean, you had like the Essenes and these kind of ascetic groups and the Gnostics that like lived out in the desert and kind of rejected the official priesthood of the temple and 
you know, then you had zealots and you had Pharisees, et cetera, Sadducees, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't as kind of united, uh, even though today there's different sects, obviously, as well. But then after the destruction of the temple, there was a, you know, correct me if I'm you know, getting any of this uh, theological history wrong, but there was kind of a transition over centuries into rabbinical Judaism and almost like a more decentralized kind of structure for the whole religion. And it became predominantly uh, a, a diasporic religion of different communities. And, you know, you had like rabbis and rabbinical scholars, you know, writing up different scriptural interpretations and things like that. So then the the there was no central geographical locus for Judaism in kind of the period of like when the Ashkenazi, the Ashkenazi Jews kind of moved up, it is presumed, I think, uh, kind of eventually. I think they moved into Italy and France, but then they were kind of expelled and migrated towards Germany and then later uh, Eastern Europe, like modern-day Poland, Ukraine, Russia, etc., right? And the form of Judaism, uh, whether it was I think what would later become like this, like neolog Judaism, or what later would today you would call it probably Reform Judaism, though mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't that yet back then. And then strains of like conservative Judaism and, and Orthodox and kind of ultra Orthodox. It, it just was more decentralized, and actually baked into it was this idea that they are a diaspora. And I guess rabbis probably came up with these like interpretations that actually like the new covenant with God is to be a light under the nations and basically be a minority group that can kind of share and enrich whatever society they're in with their uh, traditions and their, you know, their wisdom and all of these things. So it would be surprising in that context to have this young guy pop up in like the 1890s and or the late I forget, late 1880s? Let me see, mm. when he first started agitating. Yeah. No, it was like the 1890s, like when he he really, you know, founded every... Yeah, uh, Der Judenstadt, his famous pamphlet, mm-hmm. was in 1896. So this guy pops up out of nowhere and says, you know, the solution for the Jewish people in Europe is to go to Palestine and build a state there, like a basically and a central European nation And he wasn't European even like dead state. set. Palestine was like the apple of his eye, and that was what he seems to have spent the most like efforts in trying to secure. But yeah. he wasn't like opposed to like working out something else. In fact, like, he, even... he, he tried to kind of push through a uh, a British idea that they should move to Uganda, right? The yeah, Uganda right. scheme in He had all sorts of ideas, like getting into the Congo state, uh, he even was proposing there's a very like amazing passage in his diary where, you know, he's talking with uh, a cardinal at the Vatican and with uh, the king of Italy at the time. And he's even sort of proposing that he go to some like, like, you know, island in Italy or something. I, I Let me see if I can find the relevant part where they're talking about. I'm trying to remember if it was in his conversation with the Vatican or... It's an interesting uh, conversation. He did yeah. go to the Vatican. Yeah, because he wanted uh, like um, buffed him. Yeah, he wanted like their their blessing. He says uh, on January twenty third. I think this is nineteen oh five. I want to say I could be wrong, but close to that. Um, my sleep gets worse and worse. Yesterday morning, I was supposed to go with Lippe to the Vatican. He had all sorts of things to take care of, and it was eleven forty five by the time we drove up to the Porta di Bronzo. The Swiss guards and the lackeys all knew him. Like a mighty man, he strode up the steps into the loggias of his fellow artist, Raphael. 
he announced me to the Secretary of State, Mary Duval, and then took me to the antechambers of the Pope, where he left me to myself. As he disappeared, he said, I'm on my way to the Pope. The wait, an hour long, was nevertheless not boring. There was entertainment in the coming and going of the guards, chamberlains, prelates, and the lackeys in their red damask silk liveries. All the colors harmonized magnificently. The world's greatest painters had collaborated on this. It's amazing how he talks about like Catholics, probably the biggest like persecutors of Jews in history, versus how he talks about like the Ottomans, who like had like sheltered <laughs> his people for centuries. Anyway, um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. In the antechamber where I was sitting, two tall grenadiers stood in the carpet, being bored. They had their backs turned to a large, beautiful bronze crucifix, which rested on a console, flanked by two bronze saints at prayer. After a while, the grenadiers started moving up and marched up and down, up and down in step, holding their sabers at a horizontal tilt. He loves sabers. That's another thing that I want to read from this. Is where he talks oh, interesting. About, like, the interesting. Of, he of loves uh, scimitars. Mm, okay. um, he, he wanted a dueling to be part of Israeli culture. Uh, he said that he needed Very it. Very Prussian. He said it, it was needed. Uh, anyway... Um, <laughs> But they then stood again with their backs to the crucifix. The ladies gowned in black and uh, beribboned gentlemen in swallowtails emerged from the second antechamber where I could see a red carpet. They were coming from the Pope. There was certainly something court-like about it all. And the crucified figure, pitiful, suffering the image of human misery, looked down from his bronze form upon the marble walls and the court life that was unrolling here in his name and has been unrolling for many hundreds of years now. If he could have I just want to say off. real quick, I, I think yeah. this is the maybe the one of the very few times in Theodore Herzl's life when he noticed a uh, Palestinian. <laughs> yeah, yes, true, yes. Um, if he could have foreseen it all when he cried in the cross, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, would it have made dying easier or harder for him? Then Lippay returned and took me back to the apartments, the Borgia, if I'm not mistaken, occupied by the Secretary of State. Here one can see the beautiful, devout, naive frescoes of uh, Pinto Riccio, the Annunciation, the Adoration of the Magi, the Divine Child in the Lowly Manger. Nous en sommes loin. We are far removed from it. That's you. Uh, when the waiting came to an end, I was taken into the next room, the council chamber, the sacred college, a green table surrounded by red and gold armchairs. In the background, once again, the tortured God upon the cross. Various ambassadors were waiting for the Secretary of State. My turn came last. LePay ushered me in, kissed Cardinal Mary DeVal's hand, and introduced me. Then he took his leave, kissed the Cardinal's hand a second and third time, and left. Mary DeVal bade me be seated, and soon the conversation, which I conducted in French, was in full swing. As we talked, I took a good look at him. Mary DeVal is 38 years old, tall, slim, aristocratic, fine, large, brown, serious, inquiring, yet not unreligious eyes, and a still young, but already grave face. The hair at his temple showed the first streaks of gray. I told him what I wanted, the goodwill of the Holy See for our cause. He said, I do not quite see how we can take any initiative in this matter. As long as the Jews deny the divinity of Christ, we certainly cannot make a declaration in their favor. Not that we have any ill will toward them. On the contrary, the church has always protected them. To us, they are, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, All right. Buddy. Uh, uh, to us, they are the indispensable witness of the phenomenon of God's term on earth. But they deny the divine nature of Christ. How then can we, without abandoning our own highest principles, agree to their being given possession of the Holy Land? We are asking only for the profane earth. The holy places are to be extraterritorialized. Oh, but it won't do to imagine them in an enclave of that sort. I mean, bear in mind, this is all like Herzl's like reminiscence of these things. So who knows how this actually, you know, transpired, but it gives you some insight into his psychology. And we can assume that there is some truth to this, you know, if he has the yeah, people uh, generally say that's why like Pope Pius like deny like rebuked him because he said you guys 
won't accept Jesus as God. So eh, we can't really do anything. Right. And yeah, then uh, you know, basically he expresses that idea. Um, and he says, uh, a Jew who has himself baptized out of conviction is for me the ideal. And such a person, I see the physical characteristics of descent from Christ's people united with the spiritual elements. A Jew who acknowledges the divinity of Christ, mais c'est Saint-Pierre, c'est Saint-Paul. The history of Israel is our heritage. It is our foundation. But in order for us to come out for the Jewish people in those ways you desire, they would at first have to be converted. As we talk about, you know, this is a very popular idea that mm-hmm. the whole biblical prophecy was supposed to like the conversion part was supposed to happen first, not like what evangelicals yeah. now, I guess, expect or like kind of pretend to expect when like they can't possibly reasonably expect it, which is that like they'll convert later. The subtext is um, that like when the rapture starts to happen and the I end guess, of days yeah. become apparent like they they will have a chance but like they're gonna have to convert like before it all really goes down or else they're going to hell but yeah, like they right. still you know there's a little time left on the clock basically yeah so you can put it off until and you know if they don't convert like it's their fault so you know i think that's how the evangelicals sort of think about it it's like hopefully they'll convert like at the end of, when they see jesus come out of the sky like they'll realize that he's mashiach you know yeah. And like what really shows like how like a Herzl operates and like how, you know, his approach to like diplomacy, like he says, literally, think of the wanderer and his cloak, your eminence. This is, you know, his representation of his own words, like in, an, in a book that he like knew would be published posthumously. I think, you know, he certainly had a, an image that this would eventually be seen. He says, Think of the wanderer and his cloak, your eminence. The wind couldn't take it away from him, but the sun smiled it away from him. We have withstood the persecutions. We are still here today. The implication being that, like, if you do the Jews a favor, then they might convert to Christianity, whereas, like, the persecutions aren't working, which is, like, I feel like a very disingenuous argument to make as if that was actually what he hoped for or, like... Yeah, and also I one that probably would, would piss off a lot of his followers that yeah. he's kind of talking about how like, yeah, we, we're all excited to, if you treat us a little nice, if you give us a little treat, like we'll totally all convert and abandon our religion. Like definitely a lot of his followers, let's say, were much more traditionally religious uh, than he was. We'll get to that in a second with like his biographical background a little more. But uh, but anyway, sorry. Yeah. But anyway, so then he goes and, you know, meets the king. This is where he's talking about kind of these other ideas. This is actually kind of uh, talks about what is kind of gets at what you're talking about. This is an interesting part where they actually discuss the Sultan. I'll read a little bit earlier. So he says, then we were suddenly back in Palestine. This is his later conversation with the king. I told him about my plans for its future, about alt new lands. That's like old new land. That's like his, you know, vision for uh, that's actually where Tel Aviv gets its name. Because like the Hebrew translation of his book, Alt New Land, which is kind of like a, a speculative fiction novel about what Israel would be like. It was the Hebrew translation of that was called Tel Aviv. Whoa, know? interesting. Uh, so Tel where, Aviv is like old new city. Uh, Yeah. When it actually wow. literally is an old new city because it old used new. to be Jaffa and there was a mass expulsion, um, you know, oh, to okay, uh, okay. modern city of Tel Aviv. But mm-hmm. We can touch on that I a little bit. I wondered why I never heard Tel Aviv before in like the Bible it, it or in, like any yeah, history before the 20th century. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that was Jaffa. But anyway, he asked me for the whole book, for the book that is Alt New Land, if possible, not in German. For him to read it in German would be tough work. We spoke of the Jordan of the Dead Sea Canal. He remarked quite rightly, But what would you do with the salt? I said, that is something for the technician's imagination. So there you go, the sort of Zionist and technocracy thing. Yep. Uh, then we were on the subject of the Sultan again. He said, 
I know him. He is shrewd. I may embrasure. Il a peur de tout. But suspicious. He is afraid of everything. He appellera de soipel. He trembles for his skin. He fears that someone will kill him. He distrusts everybody. The true. You know, they're talking about Sultan uh, Abdul Hamid here. Yeah. Then all at once, we found ourselves talking about Sabatai Zevi, whose story he knew well. While on the subject, he also told me the following. One of my ancestors, my grandfather, 11 or 12 times removed, one Charles Emmanuel, conspired with Zevi. He wanted to become king of Macedonia or Cyprus. I'm not sure. Some sort of king anyway. Il était un peu fou, mais il avait de grandes idées. He was a bit cracked, but he had big ideas. Next, he spoke of messiahs with understandable roguishness and asked if there were still Jews who expected a messiah. Naturally, your majesty, in the religious circles, in our own, the academically trained and enlightened circles, no such thought exists, of course. At this point, it turned out that he originally had taken me for a rabbi. No, no, sire, our movement is purely nationalist. And to his amusement, I also told him how in Palestine I had avoided mounting a white donkey or a white horse, so no one would embarrass me by thinking I was the Messiah. He laughed. What else? He related how General Ottolenghi had once vainly tried to get together a minyan for prayer in Naples. He spoke of the Jews of Eritrea in China, etc. He told me how interested he was in our ancient race. But I also have Jewish callers who get visibly nervous when the word Jew is used. That is the sort I don't like. Then I really begin to talk about Jews. What I like is someone who doesn't try to appear other than he is. What else? I explained to him my original Sinai scheme. Then Uganda. He said, I am glad you've given up Uganda. I like this love for Jerusalem. I even like the attempt upon Nordau's life. Although it was the act of a criminal and a fool. This mm. is, uh, I think that was like had to do with uh, uh, Nordau's support for, like, or perceived support for uh, the uh, East African plan. Um, okay, but uh, yeah, so he's just he's you know, not you know, Max Lord, I was a piece of shit, but anyway, yeah, but another founder show, of the yeah. World Zionist Organization. It does yeah. show love for an idea. I myself have seen Jews weep at the Wailing Wall. I used to think it was play acting until I saw it with my own eyes. Not beggars, but men like yourself were weeping. Then he spoke of Napoleon's Sanhedrin in 1806, I think it was 1804, and Otto Lenghi, Moisha of Padua, took part in it. Napoleon had ideas about restoring the Jewish nation, sire. No, he only wanted to make the Jews who were all scattered over the world his agents. An idea I found in Chamberlain, too. It is an obvious idea, said the king. And finally, I broached my Tripoli scheme also. So here we go. I guess it was Tripoli that he wanted to move people to. Which was, uh, I think, that was one of the last Ottoman, kind of really full Ottoman possessions like around the turn of the century, right? Because the French had sort of taken over Algeria in the 1880s and the British effectively moved into Egypt. And uh, I was just reading about, I think, in Antonius about how, I forget the name of the districts, but basically Tripoli and Benghazi uh, were <laughs> the two like Ottoman areas that were still left. And then I think the Italians colonized it maybe around 1912 yeah. just before world war one which explains a lot of like weird um there's so many weird italian connections between like Gaddafi and italy and like weird italian well like part of the reason people. for world war one was that because italy always and this kind of is this is not like you know during world war one this is like a decade before uh yeah and so this kind of indicates that yeah they always wanted it that was like part of the reason why like they there was like an engagement um, in like 1911 between the Ottomans and Italy. I'm looking it up now. Like, yeah, they announced their intention to annex Tripoli 
on in September uh, 1911. So yeah, they had designs on Tripoli for like a long time. So that's kind of the idea, right? He wanted to channel the surplus immigration into Tripolitania under the liberal laws and institutions of Italy. And he replied, ma e ancora casa di altri. But that again is someone else's house, he said. <laughs> Unlike Palestine, and then this is an interesting part where he says, but the partition of Turkey is bound to come, your majesty. When? True, a people such as yours can wait even a hundred years, but you and I, we shall no longer be alive. So this is, a, so yeah, like they're kind of like gaming out like this inevitable, which we see play out in World War One or at the end of World War One, the partition mm-hmm. of the Ottoman Empire, right? So it's unclear what he means by someone else's house. It seems like he means, oh, that is also an Ottoman domain, mm-hmm. but maybe he also means like that's our, that's our possession, oh, yeah. not yours. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. it seems like Herzl takes it to mean like, well, you're going to take over the, like, you know, that he's saying this is Ottoman and, and Herzl's kind of replying, well, but you're going to take over that soon. You know, so it's kind of like that's the thing about this whole like Eastern question. It's like endlessly edging and closer and closer to this inevitable goal that they all have. So it kind of puts Abdul Hamid's paranoia in context, even though obviously, you know, it definitely affected his ability to govern effectively. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That well, I mean, we also I think we read last time the uh, from might have been from Herzl's diaries about from meeting or it was an article about his diaries about yeah, meeting yeah. Abdul Hamid and then afterwards being like, like that hook nosed like scumbag. Like, yeah. Like, just like spitting the this very, like, anti- popping out from his ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. but, like. Yeah. And then the author is like, yeah, the morning earlier is like, oh, monsieur, like, uh, like, s'il vous plaît. Like, he was totally prostrating towards him. Yeah, and exactly. Kind of gaslighting him. So, you know, yeah, Abdul Hamid, bit of a tyrant. Definitely not. I think he uh, did a lot of bad things. But also, even bad guys, sometimes their paranoia is not entirely unjustified. Uh, no, it's just, yeah. That reminds me of uh, that article that I put in the work fully for this week on uh, Zionism as told by Rashid Rida, um, mm-hmm. who is, you know, one of these uh, sort of big kind of like Muslim modernist thinkers, like kind of seen as like a forebearer of the the Muslim Brotherhood in, in some ways. Right. Like, mm-hmm. a, you know, kind of a, a, an early Islamist. Yeah. It kind of tracks his progression from being like kind of an admirer of Jews and kind of seeing them as like role models, really, for, you know, the, the uplift of of Muslims uh, to eventually like kind of slipping into a kind of paranoid like anti-Semitism, or at least that's certainly how it seemed at the time. Unfortunately, like a lot of his concerns that were seen as, you know, unreasonable at the time were ultimately vindicated by what eventually happens. Like, you know, at the time, his sort of concerns, I'll just uh, see if I can read from from the article here. You know, this is kind of around the period that we're talking about now. So after, you know, being sort of more admiring, he sort of uh, said that he had a kind of a favorable idea of them, right? Kind of actually mentions Hirsch. It might be worth reading a little bit above here. But anyway, so he says, Rita's first deliberation on the state of Jews was triggered by the Dreyfus affair, which also, you know, at least Herzl claimed there's been some dispute around whether actually this was shocking to him or whether he actually believed uh, the accusations against Dreyfus at first. Yeah, there's uh, some myth-making. Modern scholars have uh, concluded that there was maybe a little bit of like retconning of his rea- his experience of the Dreyfus affair working as a journalist uh, yeah. as a journalist in Paris, like the influence that had on his uh, Zionist ideas, but. He, yeah. Like he basically grew, exaggerated 
the influence of that much more later to say that was a turning yeah. point when his writing at the time does not necessarily reflect that. And in fact, I think some of his journalism actually, like he believed that Dreyfus was uh, guilty uh, along with a lot of other, we'll, we'll return yeah. to that in a second. I do want to do a run through of like just Herzl's life, but but continue. Yeah. But I mean, it's an interesting counterpoint, actually, because, yeah, so Rida's first deliberation on the state of Jews was triggered by the Dreyfus affair in early uh, 1898. At the time, Dreyfus was still in prison and his guilt was hotly debated in France. So at the time when, like, it was still kind of uncertain, Rida strongly condemned anti-Semitism as a disease and wondered what the French would have said if such an injustice had been committed in an Eastern country. He suggested the affair was motivated entirely by the desire of some newspaper owners to put their hands on Jewish money. He blasted Egyptian newspapers that, in his words, had caught the French anti-Semitic disease and attacked Jews for their financial successes, emphasizing that a true civilized and just society required total equality for all. Pretty interesting. Like, like, and I do think that there, like, certainly is, even though the, like, Zionist aggression that we're, we're witnessing right now, like, an incredible, incredibly atrocious and egregious example of doesn't help matters like now like there certainly is like uh i would say on an unhelpful uh excess of anti-semitism in like arab intellectual circles in my own view and i think that like it sort of it doesn't necessarily help the cause because the one of the main like zionist propaganda points is that people who are anti-israel are anti-semitic so i think that making a clear dissociation of the yeah, two would be yeah more valuable, i i would agree like, with that like stage yeah but, yeah not not that that's like oh like the majority or like the chief defining characteristic but i've definitely seen like that tendency before even in like people's like social media discourse where like they want to be helpful but i'm always personally sensitive to not sounding anti-semitic <laughs> like because there was anti-Semitism in Europe, primarily, you know, that people that caused a lot of like social disruption and then culminated in the Holocaust, which I think killed like a third of the Jewish population yeah. worldwide. Like, and, yeah, uh, two and three, exactly. Like, so it's not like, that. again, they're not, even if, you know, you could say like modern day Zionists are kind of weaponizing this or they're like cynically using it, like uh, the, the Jewish people do have a certain justifiable reason to be a little to get a little paranoid about like a mob yes, of angry, and I will like, say chuds that, coming to kill them because it has happened yes it's a vicious cycle in some ways i will say and this is you know this this observation goes back before october 7th where i think that it's escalated but like there's uh and i don't think that it's right to be anti-semitic about it and like i think that the only way that i think that that's like part of the problem is like not making a distinction between like the political devotion to this state and like its program of exterminating Palestinians and simply being Jewish ethnically is like the reason yeah. why like that's or like even religiously the like yeah. like the the uh, religion and the the sort of ethnic yeah, cultural group of Judaism is I think we want to like separate these two things like and actually and historically make the claim they have of, been separate that's yeah. the thing the more we read about this stuff is that like it what it wasn't a natural out outgrowth of a dominant belief in the European Jewish community it was almost like this my like i hate to say it, like a kind of a meme or a mind virus that was sort of deployed by theodore herzl who you know above all things uh you know we'll, we'll get into this but his background was as a journalist and a playwright he was a writer he was you know he had a Substack basically for you know in the 1890 like he was a you know writer influencer guy 
And he conjured up this vision that did eventually attract a lot of people. But we're talking, you know, just about almost in the 20th century, this new kind of political Zionism coalesced and, and basically was invented. And I think you get a lot more mileage talking about, you know, criticizing things that are going on today by pointing out, because a huge preoccupation of the Zionists today is basically telling people that this is how Judaism has always been. And they're kind of, talk about using human shields, actually. They are kind of implicating every Jewish person in their highly specific political strain of Judaism, yes. which is like was not representative. It does not go back like more than maybe 150 years. Like any of these ideas really don't kind of go back further than uh, about 150 years. And the specific political program is kind of started in the 20th century. And in a lot of cases, like is very out of sync with like rabbinic, rabbinical traditions and teachings and stuff like that, that were more widely accepted, like that rabbi yeah. saying like can, like, can you uh, you're please explain to me right now you're I'm yeah, yeah. yeah but but it's better because yeah. it's not good for anybody it's like it helps the zionists and it potentially like uh, it could potentially endanger like no, Jews I mean, I who are not necessarily I down with zionism agree. to be like think, uh, yeah like this is jews like they do it everywhere they always you know like that kind of shit is not helpful and uh, yeah and, and well, really I, the I truth is kind of so you know very taking complex. the piss out of like what you know they often say if you like bring up bring this up without having a Jew but then if someone who is Jewish does it then they're it's like you know you have internalized anti-semitism or like you're self-hating yeah, self self yeah yeah exactly um, so there's always an know. excuse for why you are not qualified but or yeah you can't talk about this but we're just reading the history we're reading a lot yeah. of books and by scholars who have studied this like their entire careers and were aware of the landmines of of bias that could uh exist yeah. throughout but and you know, yeah, well, as as I was saying, like, you know, out. this it, and I have noticed, like, you know, and like in recent years, like before this event, like that anti-Semitism, I think, has become maybe since 2016, <laughs> much more like common in the public sphere in the United States uh, or much more prominent than it has been for most of my life. Like the idea that like that. someone like Nick Fuentes, like would be like a figure like mm. of like the only comparison I can think of would be David Duke, who like even I mean, he was in Congress. So maybe that's like or no, didn't he, he ran for Congress, but he I don't think he no, ever, I think he was a congressman for a little while. Maybe a he? state. He was like a state senator or something. I don't think he ever. I might. Oh, yeah, wrong, right. You're right. He was a member of the Louisiana ever, House of Representatives. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was getting. And uh, I mean, you did have your Strom Thurmonds and people like that who probably didn't yeah. have a super high. He kind of looks even, like Nick Fuentes, actually, in this picture of him from the mid 70s. He's even got the yikes. mustache and everything and oh the hair, the same haircut and the suit. But yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah so but uh, no, I think I feel like growing up, it was it was very yeah. relegated to like a weirdo tiny minority of like the pretty much white population that love they were like neo-nazis and stuff and it was yeah. it felt very difficult but then, you you know, like but then the 4chan happened and yeah yeah and i think i think, for, uh, I think 4chan has a lot to do with it in terms of like re and, and just early internet culture that is the first place where i encountered actual anti-semitism i think in my life was online like as a yeah. you know middle schooler or whatever and note it was so weird like seeing that basically it's like wait really people online like still believe this and seeing like 4chan just how 
com- like how central like being casually or like viciously anti-Semitic was to like 4chan culture, especially I'd say it was always there, but like particularly in the early 2010s just you know being like jew like blah 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 like like there was always it's like there were always like neo-nazis hanging out on 4chan and really pushing these memes of like casually using like slurs and the and the meme of like the you know the jewish like stereotype little cartoon and stuff like that and then you eventually have seen yeah, for sure. There's like a different, uh, there, there's a new space for it in the culture now that I, I don't feel like in the 90s, even though you would have had like maybe racist people, like anti-Jewish sentiment was kind of, it felt like it was maybe like over at last. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But is it the was... so is the uh, response to that to then try to do a second Nakba and like expel like 2 million people? No. <laughs> once again there there's a a a transference with a i think zionists in particular where their reaction to like white and european anti-semitism is then to like take it out on the people that live in palestine and then like or use it as a cross justification of like look well there are people who hate us over here and you know i mean there actually are neo-nazis that would casually talk about like yeah we need like to kill all the jews and blah 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 though even i feel like less than maybe 50 years ago or something in terms of like i feel like there are weird neo-nazis that are like in a twisted way like respect israel or something like and they're more focused on like the muslims or like the well, blacks yeah, there's or, who will be like and, you know yeah israel are like the nazis and uh the nazis also were good <laughs> Like and stuff like that. There's a little bit of that too. Or, you know, Um, they make that distinction we talked about between like the sort of rootless cosmopolitan, like left wing, uh, secularized Jew, and then like the tough Israeli, like badass. Like they respect the latter and they still think the former. I want that for for our people. I, you know, (laughs) I I like what you do. I I, I want that for for our people. Exactly. It's like. Um, yeah, 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 but um, or like Vivek, like like you handle the bad guys in your border, and we'll handle the terrorists <laughs> yeah. on our border. Like shut the fuck yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, but no, I mean to your point, I think it's interesting that like Rida's point is saying like Egyptian newspapers have caught the French anti-Semitic disease and attacked Jews. Like so, he's seeing this as like a contaminant or like a social contagion that is originating in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Which is so counter to, and this is a guy who like. This is because this is someone who like nowadays would be like pointed to as kind of like a proto like, uh, you know, uh, Islamist, like someone who would have an ideology similar to to Hamas. uh, Right. Like, you know, this is kind of like the closest thing ideologically to like, you know, Hamas or or Fatah. Like this is a sort of early or like a proto Qutub kind of. So that's, kind you know, kind of the, the role that he eventually filled. So it's interesting to see. But that definitely changed over time for him right well because another uh, european disease uh came in called colonialism which yes. like definitely uh impact negatively impacted a sort of arab opinion of but you that is uh, that's a really great thing to point out though is that they it, it this seems like something foreign to them this kind of uh, whipping up a mob of you know anti-semitic violence and like the dreyfus affair itself uh this guy actually seems more outraged by the Dreyfus affair than allegedly 
Theodore Herzl was at the time that it was happening, uh, where he, yeah, allegedly, I was reading some stuff, like actually thought that Dreyfus was a German agent and was being like justifiably maybe prosecuted. So yeah, yeah, it's like not not quite what you would maybe expect. Yeah, and uh, just to, you know, finish out like his kind of like, or his sense of Zionism as it evolved over time. Mm-hmm. He, he said, uh, he suggested that in observing the news on Zionism, the following lesson should be noted. A, the Ottoman Empire, rather than Europe, was the place where Jews who were persecuted in Russia and Bulgaria sought shelter because Jews found under Ottoman rule security and welfare, as well as a lack of fanaticism of the kind they face at home. B, Europeans were contemplating ways to develop industry and commerce in Palestine, which should encourage similar actions on the part of Muslims. And C, despite being dispersed among the nations, the Jews helped one another and cooperated in raising money, money that could make every wish come true. Redek concluded his analysis by asking readers whether they would like the newspapers of the world to report in the future that the poorest among Europeans, who those forced to leave their homelands, possess the skills required to take over Muslim lands, settle them, and turn their owners into employees uh, and their rich into poor. Thus, in 1898, Redet perceived Zionism primarily as an insult that should awaken Arabs to their poor material state and encourage them to pursue knowledge and reform. So then there was a four-year period of silence, and then, you know, his opinions started to change uh, over time, right? In January 1902, Jewish ambitions reappeared in the pages of Al-Manar, but now as the lead story. Under the title, The Life of a Nation After Its Death, The Zionist Association of the Jews, Redet revised his earliest impression of, the, of Jewish nationalism and, always a journalist, flattered himself, without justification in this case, for having already written about the Zionist movement in 1989. Oh, sorry, 1898. I just calculated. 1989. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When no one else took notice of it. His uh, analysis failed to distinguish between Zionists and Jews and disclosed that he was unaware that the movement had won the hearts of only a minority of Jews around the world. The sources of information that led him to correct his previous analysis are unclear, but the lengthy direct quotation of a Zionist pamphlet published in Alexandria suggests that they were, at least in part, Egyptian. So, yeah, he had been sort of, you know, reading Zionist pamphlets, and then he says, Rida alleged that the Zionists had at first hidden their real intentions. When the movement was established, it pretended that its only goal was to transfer poor Jews to Palestine in order to develop the country and reside safely under the Sultan. But now, having gained strength, the Zionist movement did not hesitate to expose its true essence as a political association and revealed its real objective, to take over the sacred land and establish there as kingdom and rule. Apparently confusing, at least in part, Herzl, whose name was not mentioned in the entire article, with the British Jewish author and Zionist leader Israel Zangwill, Rida wrote that Zangwill had recently negotiated the purchase of Jerusalem as well as predicted a massive Jewish return to Palestine and the transformation of the land by the people of Israel into a shining lighthouse in all fields, social, political, judicial, cultural, and agricultural. Rida went as far as proposing that Zangwill was wrong in reprimanding the rich Jews for not doing to Zionism. Assessing the prospects of Zionism as more promising than the Zionist leaders themselves believed them to be, Rida argued that lack of support from affluent Jews at that stage made sense. Those rich Jews were waiting for fundraising efforts among the poor and the middle class to be exhausted before contributing their share. He predicted that the day would soon come when a rich Jew, such as Baron Hirsch, another big player in all this, who oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Herzl also had a bit of a bone to pick with for the same reasons uh, as Rothschild and, and the religious leaders, 
yes. um, would stretch out his hand in support of Zionism. So in interest, you kind of had the same kind of uh, predictions as Herzl's hopes in a way, where Herzl was hoping like eventually these rich Jews will see like, you mm -hmm. know, my vision. And uh, Rida, for, he had the same sort of prediction, but it was like his fear, right? Yeah, so at the time, right, it was kind of a paranoid idea, right? And it would have been, there are a lot of people who are dismissive of these kind of like anxieties. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, like a lot of what uh, he feared turned out to be vindicated. And yes, yeah, it it's certainly actually, did. yeah, there actually was some uh, accuracy to, to what he, he was afraid of. So, yeah. Even though, you know, around the turn of the century, it still seemed an almost impossible dream uh, to set up what Theodor Herzl, you know, said he wanted to set up. There was sort of a, it was by no means a foregone conclusion, I guess, but, uh, but there definitely was, <laughs> I think, justifiable room for paranoia at that point. Yeah. And while his kind of like view of like these, you know, uh, a lot of what he said was definitely anti-Semitic and definitely untrue. Yeah, certainly you can see how these sort of uh, political tenants, like the context in which political tendencies like that took shape, because it, you can even sort of see it through the transformation of his views over the course of his own life in response to what he witnessed going on around him. Even though, yeah, again, there's certainly an element of paranoia to it, but you can also see the other side.
But, well, yeah. speaking of the other side, uh, maybe I just want to lay down a few things about Theodore Herzl. Um, okay, where? To, uh, to sort of map, like, his uh, life path, um, which is not that long. He, died, he also died... I think at age 44. Yeah, that's right. At age uh, 44. That's going to be important in a little bit. But uh, in 1904. So I think um, I just want to make a clear sketch of kind of like who this guy was. Like I said, he was born in Budapest. He came from, he claimed later that his family had Sephardic lineage, which I guess carried some kind of prestige with it back then. Hmm. I'm not exactly sure why. But I think later on, people have looked into his genealogy and decided he probably was just Ashkenazi. <clears throat> I guess, yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. it's interesting because, like, uh, yeah, maybe Ashkenazim at the time were seen as being kind of, like, more put upon and sort of more immiserated, I guess, in Europe uh, yeah, than so far yeah. where it's possible. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, they lived in Budapest uh, initially, and uh, let's see, he lived with his family. This is just kind of a Wikipedia overview. He lived with his family in a house next to the uh, Dohani Street Synagogue, located in Belvaros, uh, the inner city in the historical old town of Pest. So pretty nice upbringing, like a kind of maybe like petty bourgeois kind of upbringing. And like I said, very integrated to the extent that he did not speak Yiddish. He didn't speak Hebrew. He, you know, he never went to Hebrew school. Um, instead of having a bar mitzvah, he actually had like a Christian confirmation. Might have been a Catholic confirmation. You know, also celebrated. I think up into his adulthood, this is surprising. Um, up into his adulthood, celebrated Christmas every year rather than Hanukkah. So going on here, in his youth, Herzl was was inspired to follow the footsteps of Ferdinand de Lesseps builder of the Suez Canal, but he did not succeed in the sciences and instead developed a growing enthusiasm for poetry and humanities. This passion later developed into a successful career in journalism and a less celebrated pursuit of playwriting. According to Amos Elon, as a young man, Herzl was an ardent Germanophile who saw the Germans as the best Kulturvolk cultured people in Central Europe and embraced the German ideal of Bildung, whereby reading great works of literature by Goethe, and Shakespeare could allow one to appreciate the beautiful things in life and thus become a morally better person because the Bildung, the Bildung theory tended to equate beauty with goodness. Herzl believed that through Bildung, Hungarian Jews such as himself could shake off their, quote, shameful Jewish characteristics caused by long centuries of impoverishment and oppression and become civilized Central Europeans, a true Kulturvolk uh, along the German lines. In 1878, after his sister Pauline died of typhus, the Herzl family moved to Vienna and lived in the 9th district, Ausergrund. At the University of Vienna, Herzl studied law. As a young law student, Herzl became a member of the German nationalist Burschenschaft. Uh, this is a kind of a fraternity or secret society uh, called Albia, which had the motto, I said this is very Aquino-approved, uh, mm -hmm. Erhe Freiheit Vaterland, uh, Honor, Freedom, Fatherland. <laughs> he later resigned in protest at the organization's anti-Semitism. So, um... Actually, this is a good time to mention one of the things I did to learn a little more about Herzl last night was I found on YouTube something that uh, was in like like the Spielberg, something called the Spielberg Film Archive, I presume, you know, due to a donation by Steven Spielberg at one <laughs> of the Hebrew universities in Israel. But this is, 
I mean, I think it's kind of maybe a kind of film preservation thing for earlier films about Judaism. So I found this film from 1960 called uh, Theodore Herzl, A Living Portrait, which is kind of like (laughs) an informational biopic about uh, Theodore Herzl that was produced by the Canadian Zionist Organization, which I assume is probably a a chapter of the World Zionist Organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a very uh, hagiographic kind of rundown and dramatization of Herzl's life. Um, But they dedicate a whole scene, you know, in his younger years to uh, him leaving Albia. Basically, he describes it that, yes, he joined this elite fraternity that was like very German nationalist. And then at some point, they made a rule that they weren't going to accept any more Jews, which the movie notes like did not apply to Herzl. They said, oh, no, Herzl, like you're not one of those Jews. Like you're you're all right kind of thing. But then he felt conflicted about that because, you know, if, if my fellow Jews can't join, I'm not going to join. Fuck that. So he left. He resigned in protest. So that was an early encounter with a kind of, I mean, a very almost particularly bourgeois type of uh, anti-Semitism that was very prevalent in those years, like in Europe and probably the United States as well. The, the proverbial mm-hmm. old boys club, not, you know, letting uh, not letting Jews join like the Metropolitan Club, for example, like the old wasps in like New England, you know, yeah. had a very chilly reception to, uh, they, they would tolerate them living in society and doing business and even being wealthy. But when it came to being invited into those clubs or, you know, something like, I'm sure that Skull and Bones did not admit Jews for like many years. I, they, I'm sure they do now. But, yeah, you know, oh, that was not. kind of a dynamic, right? Yeah. So, I mean, know. even the town I grew up in was kind of like that. Like, I remember, and you probably had to do this too, like it, when we did these like concerts, like Christmas time concerts, you know, like at our yeah, elementary with, like, school. recorders or something. We like included like some Hanukkah songs. And I remember uh-huh. like my mom like got a call from like some like PTA mom being like, I'm making a list of all the Jews in our town, you know, uh, to show like that we don't need to have these Hanukkah songs. So there's not any Jews. And my mom was like, you know that i'm jewish right like you know just like oh well you know like yeah like so it's the same type of thing of like yeah like she was outraged about the hanukkah songs wow and you know wow. and, we, and like years later my own dad was like well i mean come on <laughs> like you know like <laughs> yeah like jesus um, man i mean I, w- I i thought about this for a second because i went to catholic school so i was about to be like oh, um, yeah, actually no right. we didn't, didn't have, have hanukkah songs that. but no we um, actually did have because there's one girl in my class whose mom was jewish and like we actually had a whole Hanukkah like day where mm-hmm. like because we for us it was fun and we did Passover too because I mean it's if you think about it actually wow, a problematic religious school, Christians doing Passover uh, well you know I mean we would drink uh, little cups of grape juice and then uh, eat the challah bread and um, yeah ha- I love challah bread. bread yeah um, Hall- and then yeah Hamas yeah, bread challah, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And um, um, and then we would we would do the the dreidels like uh, during Hanukkah, and then like the the mom would kind of explain like you know what the traditions are, and then we would get little uh, gelt like little right, uh, yes, chocolates right. that are familiar, yeah, yeah, covered in gold and stuff. So we got we got to do a little like uh, like got a little exposure to it, and I guess nobody interesting, yeah, maybe it's a West Coast thing, but like nobody got really mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> Tried to um, create a list of Jews uh, in the school. Um, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's because like it, like the boundaries are clearer at Catholic school, and like there wasn't. I don't know. Maybe or maybe the, there's no um, question who like maybe the, that, the dominant uh, the, dog. The is. Vatican Secretary of State was right, and you know they've always been tolerant. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very like Jesuit vibe, kind of like 
post Vatican II Jesuit vibe kind of uh, hippie like yeah. uh, version in the Bay Area. But, but uh, anyways, yeah. um, okay, so you know, so he grew up, you know, speaking German, very not raised in religious Jewish traditions at all, um, and he ideal he you know idolized basically German culture and was a huge Germanophile. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so grew up in Vienna, blah, blah, blah. He was a lawyer for a little while and then pivoted to journalism and literature. So he started working for a Neue Freie Presse uh, in Paris, which is and then occasionally made trips to London and Istanbul. And uh, that's where, you know, he ended up in Paris during this Dreyfus affair, which later he would say had a huge influence on him in guiding his political ideology because he was a huge Actually, he was a huge liberal assimilationist uh, initially. He was uh, yeah. a one Henry Wickham Steed, an older historian, was quoted as saying Herzl was fanatically devoted to the propagation of Jewish German liberal assimilationist doctrine. And so he said the Dreyfus affair was like one of these things. But I think I found, let's see. A later article, maybe this is on forward.com. It was one of the links on Wikipedia of like questioning it. Uh, this is titled, Did Dreyfus Affair Really Inspire Herzl? by Liam Hoare in 2014. They wrote that the idea that the trial of Alfred Dreyfus inspired Theodor Herzl to write, quote, uh, Der Judenstaat, or the Jewish state, is, quote, simply not true. Shlomo Avenari declared in a pointed, fluent, and well-received lecture that opened the first full day of London's Jewish Book Week on February 23rd. Discussing his biography of the father of modern Zionism, Herzl, Theodore Herzl and the Foundation of the Jewish State, Avenari asserted that through examining Herzl's diaries and letters, he concluded that the Dreyfus Affair did not preoccupy Herzl's thoughts at that time, only in hindsight would the fate of Alfred Dreyfus come to be seen as a pivotal moment both for European Jewry and the history of the Zionist movement. Rather, the background to the Jewish state was the collapsing scenery of 19th century Europe and specifically the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had, up until that time, been, quote, the best country for Jews in Europe and had been referred to as the uh, Golden Medine. Uh, I don't know what that means. Even before the United States. Emancipation towards the end of the 18th century, uh, while in the 19th century, the Emperor Franz Josef I obtained the moniker Froyem Yosel from his Jewish subjects, who during his reign became more equal members of his multinational, multi-ethnic empire. So, let's see, during the 1890s, however, quote, nationalism threatened the unity of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, while the advent of democracy resulted in the emergence of racist, populist, and anti-Semitic candidates for office. This affected Herzl's city of Vienna, where, now this is more important, Karl Luger, I think I'm pronouncing that right, of the Christian Social Party, won municipal elections in 1895 by decrying, quote, corrupt liberalism and charging that Jews controlled the Austrian economy and the press. Luger's campaign indicated that part of this disintegration of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and of Europe more generally was the emergence of anti-Semitism as a reaction to Jewish emancipation. This anti-Semitism, Avenary writes in Herzl, stressed the ethnic and racial character of the Jews, not their religion. Moreover, it was not their suffering and weakness that sparked the new hatred. It was their success and their power, whether real or imagined. 
What Herzl saw, Avenary said, was that this new anti-Semitism was, quote, deterministic since there is, quote, no way out of a Jewish identity that is in the blood. While emancipation had demolished the physical walls of the old ghettos, opening up industry, commerce, and the professions and granting Jews new political and social rights, the Jews of Europe, quote, found themselves in a new ghetto without walls, an invisible ghetto, but a ghetto nevertheless. Herzl, therefore, was the first one to understand the structural changes taking place in European society, that the place for Jews in a supposedly liberal and enlightened Europe was shrinking due to the rise of nationalism and anti-Semitism. In Austria and Germany, the Czech Republic and Serbia, Jews were moving from being one ethnicity among many in multi-ethnic empires to being, quote, national minorities in very nasty European nation-states. It was not the trial of Alfred Dreyfus, but Herzl's long analysis of the failure of emancipation and the rise of German and Austrian anti-Semitism, Avenary writes, that led him to his conclusions that the Jews of Europe had to get out, quote, out of wealthy, liberal European society, which had granted equal rights to the Jews, but is unable to truly liberate them. But where then is the origin of the misnomer that l'affaire Dreyfus begat the Jewish state? After all, the Dreyfus trial is mentioned only incidentally in the hundreds of pages of Herzl's diaries that Avenary constructed his new biography upon. Moreover, in Herzl's original account of the degradation of Dreyfus, this is, okay, I thought this was very, very interesting. So in Herzl's, and and it kind of sounds like something happening today, in Herzl's original account of the degradation of Dreyfus, when there was like a huge mob marching in the streets, basically kind of calling for Dreyfus's head, Herzl has the crowd shout, death to the traitor, not death to the Jews, as it right, appears today yeah. in the history books used in Israeli schools. And, you know, he also says that Avenary contends that Herzl himself was, at least in part, responsible for its dissemination. In wow. an essay entitled On Zionism, written in 1899 and published in the literary journal North American Review, Herzl remembered the event of Dreyfus's humiliation differently than in his original account. That is it is possible his memory simply betrayed him, but it is also possible that this essay was written specifically quote in order to promote the zionist cause among yeah, non-jewish that's, americans that's, that's possible i i would say that's possible uh, yeah that that sounds a little bit likely so I that's see very, that being the case <laughs> yeah yeah um, so i guess uh they also write in addition four years on from la Fea dreyfus and three years after the publication of the jewish state the emergence of information questioning dreyfus's supposed guilt took on a greater or different meaning. His retrial in 1899 became a battle between the Republican left on one hand and the Catholic monarchist right on the other. And for Herzl, it seemed to confirm the notion that emancipation had failed European Jewry. Thus, this later account of Dreyfus's court-martial became part of the historical record as opposed to the original. According to this version, quote, It was the sight of the innocent Dreyfus being expelled from the French army and French society and the cries of the crowd that convinced him that the Jews needed their own country. What Avenary stresses, however, is that this is very much a retrospective rearranging of history. I just thought that was so interesting because I've heard it the last two months. I've just heard nonstop like discourse on, you know, whether it's like uh, Bill Maher or on CNN or any other kind of news channel or in op-eds and stuff, that apparently the um, the streets of America are just filled with uh, psycho, Antifa, uh, SJW yeah. uh, protesters from colleges that 
are that are chanting death to the Jews. Uh, when in fact, yes. like every video, <laughs> yeah, I've yet to see that's a fucking bullshit. Yeah. I, I've yet to see a video. Not to say there wasn't anti-Semitism in France or it didn't influence the Dreyfus affair at all, but I've yet to see an actual video of like, unless it's like some weird, like I don't know, Larouche, you know, some kind of like. Well, sus I, re- group I remember that- seeing a video where like a guy, maybe you saw this too, like some guy was like tweeting saying like, "Listen to this." They're saying we want Jewish genocide when they were I saying like, that. we want, we charge you with genocide. Yeah. They were saying like, it was Israel, like Israel, Israel, you can't Israel, hide. You we, can't hide. Yeah, exactly. we charge you with genocide was the chant. Yeah. And then somebody like, started did saying, that. Israel, Israel, you can't hide. We want Jewish genocide. Yeah. We want <laughs> like, Jewish genocide. Like, and which like, is like, like, and this was like, yeah, like it wasn't like, it was like a Hamas like bunker or something where they were like doing the of like, we want, it was like, you know, a like a, a college group or something that this guy was saying was going around saying we won't like how deranged you have to be like to actually think that, you know, well, you can say that like, oh, they're useful idiots or whatever. I mean, obviously, I don't think you can say that. I think that's like another uh, version of this that is a bit more plausible, but still like absurd. But this is really insane. Like and just oh, this is an- is a, in another, a another universe arc. almost like yeah, and, it's a yeah, central the amount argument of play that that's gotten is crazy. Yeah. 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 It's accepted as fact among like people that are kind of on a pro-Zionist side that there have been like, you know, thousands, yeah, that, hundreds like, of instances of like marching around saying, yeah, that they, they also, they're like, I, I never thought I'd see the day when Harvard students were marching around, like chanting death of the Jews. And it's like, well, cause they're probably not chanting. They're that. definitely like, I highly not. doubt that they're chanting yeah. that. I mean, and if they are, that's stupid and it's bad. Like I like death of the Jews is like, that's dumb, but yeah. But there's kind of a thing here. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I know there's just a movie about the Dreyfus affair, which I feel like I saw the trailer for it, and I'm pretty sure it. I mean, maybe the the dominant historical interpretation of it today is that it was kind of this frenzied anti-Semitic like mob backed like kind of you know a high tech lynching of like a Jewish officer for being yeah. a German spy. But I mean, I don't. At the same time, like a lot of people at the time thought he was guilty, including apparently. Right. Well, it doesn't mean that it wasn't. It doesn't mean that it it wasn't anti-Semitic, and certainly Theodore Herzl wasn't immune to being anti-Semitic either. Oh, I would say that he was in many respects. Um, Yeah, yeah, but yeah. On the topic of Herzl, actually, I wanted to read like some from his diaries, like what you were saying before about how he was like, you know, a playwright and everything, and like, you know, kind of a a sub stacker uh, in in your analogy, like. There are He's like a screenwriter. You know, yeah, yeah. He actually made some notes uh, on because, you know, this is when he was like dreaming up his whole kind of vision for what Israel would be like, like a lot of his diary is just kind of like brainstorming, like his kind of ideal state, you know, the image of like what the laws are going to be in Alt's new land. He says, uh, note that the next European war cannot harm our enterprise, but only benefit it because all Jews will transport all their belongings across the safety. Cowards will want to shirk military duty in our state if it comes to war. But just as I want to favor desertion on our side in peacetime, I shall impede it in wartime on account of Jewish honor. Let anyone who has delayed his adherence until then do his old duty and fight. And when the war is over, we shall receive him with all honors, much greater ones than his former fatherland accorded him. In this way, our fighting forces will get experienced warriors who have faced death and will enhance the prestige of our army. A lot of this is like just a dreaming and fantasizing about like the IDF. Like, and a lot of this actually uh, reminds me of, kind of the same ideology like that exists. Yeah. Incidentally, when peace is concluded, we shall already have a say as money givers and achieve advantages of recognition through diplomatic channels. June 10th. 
draw limits of freedom of the press wisely, the pillory for slanderers and substantial fines. <laughs> That's funny. A house mm -hmm. of lords for the aristocracy, but not inheritable. First, there must be an examination as to merit. This is very like technocratic. I must yes. give more thought to ways of guarding against the absurd heirs of other countries. Today is Hansi's birthday. Oh, his son Hans. A very tragic story. I think we should probably talk about what happened to his son Hans too. But um, all I know about him is that he was uh, circumcised after his father's death. Uh, like yeah, like the, the insistence the of Zionists. Yeah, the because his father again, like he didn't have his own son. He didn't give his own son a bris when he was born yeah. because he wasn't like a Zionist yet. And like, that's how assimilated he was. Like, like this came rather kind of maybe not all at once, but it's sort of, you know, he had a life kind of before he was converted and had this sort of fever dream of an idea. And then all of his activities or maybe what in the last like kind of 15 years of his life. Um, yeah. It, he that's when he did all it's of his kind of political work. Hans is actually a sad story like this, like, you know, even though like I like despise like the state of Israel and like the ideology of Zionism that Theodore Herzl gave birth to reading this from his diary does make me like sad. He says today is Hansi's birthday. He is four years old. I sent him a telegram to Vienna. Love and kisses to my father king. That is my mother calls him. And I think of my dream. So on one level, this is like psychotic and like basically like this megalomaniacal vision of like his uh son being like the king of palestine like of you know this you know glorious israeli state but what actually happened is so different from that that it kind of like it has a tragic aspect to it because you know you can't help but feel bad for the son because you know he didn't i think actually he repudiated it at the end of his life and he made like a statement actually i think yeah like a, that jews should be in their own dispersed like in these uh different countries you know and not uh try to be be nationalists but Actually, he not only, yeah, he wasn't circumcised, but then he was circumcised like later in life. And I guess it was mm -hmm. like sort of uh, traumatic for him. He was kind of like pushed into it by like uh, associates like of his father. And I think that it like didn't, I think also like it might not have worked. Like, or I think like, you know, or it might not have been properly. Yeah. I think that so it they might have, have like genitally mutilated him. Yeah, basically. I mean, there's a reason they do it to like basically almost like newborn babies, uh, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, um, it, it, you don't remember the trauma and it just heals. But like, I don't know yeah. how I actually. Yeah, I don't know if that's a common thing. Like, if a, an adult man converts to Judaism, like, is there a kind of a tradition, or was this a special thing? As like the son of Theodore Herzl. Like, come on, you got to be circumcised or, or something like I, that. I, I'm not sure. I think so. Like, I think that that was like the idea that like, you know, I mean, it's an important thing for for Jews to be circumcised. So I think that they felt like they felt like it was in his best interests. But mm -hmm. it turned out, yeah, not to be because, well, he yes, it, it was apparently something I think it's it's kind of portrayed in the in the literature that he sort of this was the kind of the the impetus for what ha happened uh, later in his life where he he eventually actually converted to christianity and That's right yeah yeah uh in 1924 right but a couple years after that in uh 1930 he actually killed himself he said uh in his last manuscript he said to my jewish brothers i should like to say that if they go to the new testament they will find divinely revealed truth I think that Christianity can be allowed to develop within the synagogue. The Jews are a nation among other nations of the world. The Jews of the church must have some outward token of sovereignty. My life was badly lived and it is taking a bad end. 
Still, I hope there may be someone who will say of me, he too had some kind of music in his soul. Hmm. Yeah, there's this interesting article, uh, Apostasy of a Prince, uh, Hans mm-hmm. Herzl and the, and the Boundaries of Jewish Nationalism by Anna Perez. It's interesting. It kind of analyzes his uh, conversion and his suicide in the context of like the expectations of the Zionist Congress, right? Mm. Yeah, by the mid-1920s when Hans converted, the common denominator of the various Zionist streams was the pursuit of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But this was an amorphous task. Zionists contested the strategy of this pursuit, the meaning of quote-unquote Jewish, and the socio-political nature of a quote-unquote homeland. These debates and negotiations were not just between the religious and secular, but among secular Zionists as well, who ranged, as Gideon Shimoni posits, between normative and laissez-faire approaches to secular Jewishness, and Hans Herzl tested these criteria, thus serving as a fulcrum of debate regarding existing tensions in the movement. So I think that this is so contested, like, and there's so much debate and anxiety around, like, what makes someone Jewish, like, who is a Jew, and, like, what, you know, what is Zionism going to be, that, like, in all that sort of neurosis, it became, that's why people were, were really feeling that this guy needed to be circumcised. But yeah, so he, yeah, but I guess eventually he he converted to Christianity and then uh, committed suicide, which is very different from what Herzl imagined where, you know, his son was going to be like king, king. one day. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Of, that's like pretty a Jewish dark. state is pretty dark. But yeah, so anyway, Herzl goes on here and this is the quote that I wanted to uh, to read. He starts, you know, just uh, sort of uh, fantasizing for, for a long time, uh, endlessly talking and talking. He says, come to think of it, in all this, I am still the dramatist. I pick poor people in rags off the streets, put gorgeous costumes on them, and have them perform for the world a wonderful pageant of my composition. I no longer operate with individuals, but with masses. The clergy, the army, the administration, the academy, etc. All of them mass units to me. Yes. Um, I mean, he yeah. is a dramaturg. It further vindicates like our theory about like sort of like the power of uh, the arts or like performance in sometimes like building political movements and like he really manifested this shit like as kind of like a writer and was like i'm gonna come up with you know basically yeah this entire i'm gonna sort of formulate this entire fever dream and he often uses even pro-zionist people will positively refer to it as his dream like this came out of like he is i think he said to baron de hirsch um, his meeting is with him is also uh, dramatized in that that Canadian movie I watched, where Hirsch kind of blows him off. It's like, oh well, you know, you just want my. He said, you know, you are a Jewish like banker. You're like a great man of you know finance and industry, but I am like a Jewish dreamer, okay? basically yeah. kind of like a mystic. And like my job is to like th- imagine new things like unrestrained by worldly realities. And he's like, oh, yeah, and you require a bunch of my money to, like, realize your <laughs> yeah. dreams, huh? And he's like, yeah, but, like, just give it to me. And yeah. um, I think at one point when he started to formulate this uh, idea, he did go around to, like, Baron de Rothschild and um, Baron de Hirsch and other people like this. And I think he had formulated, like, his one of his earlier ideas of how to settle Palestine is that all of these wealthy European Jewish bankers would... Like it's like the original giving pledge. Like they would give up half their fortunes to basically buy Palestine from the Ottomans. Yeah, and uh, like unsurprisingly, Rothschild and these other guys uh, were not too thrilled about that. Uh, and yeah. so that didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Even on the first page of his diary, he has this really, you know, like sort of 
lofty, like waxing uh, passage where he says, for some time past, I have been occupied with a work of infinite grandeur. At the moment, I do not know whether I shall carry it through. It was like a mighty dream. But for days and weeks, it has possessed me beyond the limits of consciousness. It accompanies me wherever I go, hovers behind my ordinary talk, looks over my shoulder at my comically trivial journalistic work, disturbs me and intoxicates me. It is still too early to surmise what will come of it. But my experience tells me that even as a dream, it is something remarkable and that I ought to write it down. If not as a reminder to mankind, then at least for my own delight, a reflection in later years. And perhaps as something between these two possibilities, that is, as literature. If my conception is not translated into reality, at least out of my activity can come a novel. Title? The Promised Land. To tell the truth, I am no longer sure that it was not actually the novel that I first had in mind, although not as something quote-unquote literary for its own sake, but only as something that would serve a purpose. So yeah, this is, uh, you know, his declaration. You can kind of see how this whole diary is like kind of creating the image of Theodore Herzl as the great Zionist visionary. Yeah, yeah, this is a real uh, immersive art uh, performance art project. Yeah, it's uh, performance art, folks. Yeah, yeah. he's doing perform. He's doing tactical magic. Yeah, tactical media, basically. But damn, if it didn't work. I mean, this he creates this meme essentially that you know is really not rooted in. It's not rooted in like his own background or expertise or resources or religious or political standing or anything he's just a writer like he basically quit he got frustrated by the censorship quit the lamestream media and like started a Substack, and you know and then published like zionist mindset like self-published <laughs> basically and i guess it caused you know the the this dream vision of his caused a pretty incredible stir in the mid 1890s when it came out right and like within a few short years, he was organizing the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, right? I forget yeah. if it was 1898 or 1899, but you know, this had rep- the first time that like representatives from Jewish communities uh, from all over uh, convened. And, you know, this, this eventually forms into the, the, the world Zionist organization, which uh, I feel like we're going to talk a whole lot about in uh, subsequent chapters but you know still around today and was uh like a central engine of establishing israel eventually but you know he and he does all this in because then he dies in 1904 at the age of 44 i actually didn't see this in the writing but it's interesting that the movie depicts this where i guess he died of like he had like some kind of um heart condition that worsened and then he he died, uh, I think, while traveling. But he mentions in the movie something about how, like, I'm dying at, at age, like, I, I think I'm going to, like, I might die at age 44, but then, like, in the next 44 years, like, maybe my prophecy will come true. And then in, like, 1948, like, 44 years later, the establishment of, like, Herzl's dream. And so some people do regard him, like, I, I have to look up, exactly what he sort of claimed or maybe wrote in his diary there might even be kind of like numerology kind of thing that people get into with it but basically it's kind of seen as like a prophecy that you know like very specifically like in the next 44 years a jewish state in palestine will be established and then that's what uh that's what happened but talking about the initial reaction to these ideas and how how he got to this level of prominence so quickly i found an interesting article uh again this is the article cited saying that like he actually didn't care 
about the Dreyfus case. Um, but this is by uh, Jacques Kornberg from the University of Toronto called Theodore Herzl, A Reevaluation. Let's see, that's from 1980, but I think it has a good critical lens on Herzl and basically also, I think, something worth getting into, like his uh, particular breed of anti-Semitism that would pop up, uh, you yeah. could say. And so I'm just going to read a little bit from this. Kornberg writes that, Until recently, Theodor Herzl was always celebrated unreservedly by his interpreters. The definitive biography of Herzl by Alex Bean published in 1934, was a monument to the man, emphasizing his far-seeing insight into the Jewish condition and his surpassing political skill. Major reassessments appeared in the 70s, offering fresh data and some new perspectives on Herzl. In some of these studies, the Herzl image continues to be exaggerated by hagiography. Others depart from this trend. Taken together, these works prod us to reconsider Herzl and measure both the magnitude and the limits of his achievement. It would be foolhardy to minimize Herzl's contribution to Zionism. His charismatic gifts electrified the Jewish masses and boosted immeasurably Zionism's political credibility in the capitals of Europe. Jews had in Herzl a head of state in exile. Moreover, he created the institutional framework of a state in being, a parliament, an executive, a state bank. Herzl's charisma and astuteness as an organizer were matchless. However, his interpreters have too often assigned him a place beyond all contention, and the limits of his contribution have not been plumbed. His problematic version of Zionism, questionable political judgments, and irresponsible adventurism have been transformed instead by a sort of alchemist's art into prophetic vision, long-delayed Jewish self-assertion, and clever calculation. Herzl sought national power to provide Jews with a haven from anti-Semitism. If that were the whole story, he might well deserve the wholesale vindication he has received against his contemporary detractors. But he also sought Jewish power in order to make Jews over into Gentiles, to normalize what he saw as a deformed people. Set on normalizing Jews, Herzl came close to rejecting Jewish particularism. He showed little understanding of the needs of a genuine Jewish national rebirth and disparaged the Hebrew cultural revival. Herzl was a thorn in the side of those bent on returning to Palestine to fulfill themselves as Jews. That's in italics. If we move from Herzl's ideology to his political activity, the glow of myth is even brighter. Herzl has been a major beneficiary of the assumption that the politics of nationalism transform a people from passive objects of history into active subjects. There is much truth to this assumption. Though nations are hardly free of innumerable dependencies, while the absence of sovereign power does not always make for a passive and timorous politics— Herzl's political self-assertion has been vastly exaggerated, while the Jewish militancy of his opponents, the Zionists as well as the anti-Zionists, has been unduly minimized. Herzl worked on a short-range political timetable. His pressing sense of urgency about Jewish sovereignty is usually attributed to forebodings about Jewish distress. His sense of immediacy should rather be linked to his messianic political style. Herzl wrote a tide of messianic expectancy— his claim to political leadership and to well-nigh exclusive decision-making powers depended upon the promise of quick results. When results were not forthcoming, his hold on the movement began to erode. Moreover, his illness and the belief that death was near accentuated his haste. Herzl's impatience sometimes led him to barter Zionist militancy for vague political promises from European statesmen. These promises, he believed, would sustain faith in his leadership— Moreover, towards the end of his career, spurred by the need for a dazzling success, Herzl resorted to reckless adventurism in the Uganda affair that we mentioned, a move that badly demoralized and almost split the Zionist movement. 
The Herzl scholarship is, however, unanimous in vindicating him. Irresponsible haste becomes a far-seeing concern about Jewish distress. Adventurism becomes subtle calculation, but the effort to vindicate him does not hold up. As with many who leave their mark on history, Herzl, in his tragically short life, fast became a liability to the movement to which he gave so much. So they go on to ask, what was the shape of Herzl's Zionism, its basic impulse, its raw nerve? What impelled Herzl to become a Zionist? The dramatic and engaging notion that Herzl, quote, converted to Zionism in the wake of the Dreyfus trial is unacceptable. This version is not confirmed by his writings at the time of the first trial, when all, including Herzl, believed Dreyfus guilty, nor by his first diary account of his path to Zionism. Later on, Herzl, conscious of his, quote, legend, as he called it, endowed himself with the authority of prophecy. His claim that he had believed in Dreyfus's innocence from the very beginning came in 1899, five years after the first trial. By then, the army's frame-up of Dreyfus was public knowledge. Herzl himself tells us that the rise of anti-Semitism had nagged at him from the early 1880s. Much had happened to intensify his concern when, after 1891, he went to Paris as a parliamentary correspondent. Anti-Semitism surfaced explosively in 1892 in parliamentary debates over the financial collapse of the Panama Canal Company. That same year, a series of duels between Jewish army officers and anti-Semites who had questioned their loyalty rocked France. Herzl was first moved to write in the Jewish question in the fall of 1894, some weeks before Dreyfus's arrest. He poured out his thoughts in a play, The New Ghetto, meant to be, quote, a piece of Jewish politics. Three years later, well after his shift to political Zionism, Herzl was far from repudiating the play and looked back upon it as his most important theatrical effort. Desmond Stewart has pointed to this chronology, and in doing so has opened up a line of interpretation that emphasizes Herzl's earliest reflections on the Jewish problem and their continuity with his later writings. The New Ghetto, this play, is about Viennese Jews in the late 1870s. Their lives revolve around social climbing, marriage alliances, and stock stock market manipulations. All except Jacob, the one virtuous Jew, lack pride and integrity. They are, by turns, aggressive and obsequious. In one scene, a Jewish financier throws himself upon the mercy of his former employee, panicked after he had overextended himself financially. Persecution and the tactics of minority survival have left Jews bereft of inner nobility. The New Ghetto is a storeroom of anti-Semitic stereotypes. <laughs> Indeed, Herzl would later insist that anti-Semitism was more than understandable. It was salutary, quote, useful to the Jewish character, constituting, yeah. quote, the education of a group by the masses. In the end, as he believed, through, quote, hard knocks, a Darwinian mimicry will set in then Jews would be improved. First, the new ghetto would have to disappear, for it had proved just as difficult to penetrate as the old physical ghetto. Repelled by the Jew and denying their own terrible role in limiting Jewish possibilities, Christians continued to exclude and discriminate against them. Christians, as Herzl saw it, must reach out to Jews, but Jews must also remake themselves. Jacob, dying from wounds received in a duel, utters the play's final message. O Jews, my brethren, they won't let you live again until <laughs> until you dot, dot, great. dot. His very last words remained unuttered. Their meaning is clear. Until you learn how to die. Wow. <laughs> I love, okay. I love that, like, he was such, like, a, like, he's, he definitely, like, loves, like, Wagner and is, like, you know, has these, like, grand, like, spectacular visions. But this sounds like kind of like an Ibsen, 
knockoff <laughs> too, like where it's this like sort of naturalistic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really wild. Funny. Um, so it's, he says <laughs> the new ghetto like- is, is this new ghetto is a startling document of Herzl's attitude toward the Jewish question, and yet it is neglected in the literature or misread. Bean takes Herzl's claim about the significance of the Dreyfus affair at face value, neatly evading hard questions about the character of Herzlian Zionism. What is most striking in this account is Herzl's prescience, located firmly in the Dreyfus experience, quote, he sensed the coming convulsion, felt and recognized the subterranean forces at play, which would someday break forth with volcanic fury. If only, Bean implies, all Jews would have read the handwriting on the wall. (laughs) Bean tells us that with the new ghetto, Herzl, quote, completed his inner return to his people. Jacob, the protagonist, stands for the Jewish future. The play emphasizes, quote, self-respect. It is a call for decent pride. To read into the new ghetto, Herzl's inner return to the Jews is to transform a highly ambivalent and hostile work into its virtual opposite, It was written by a Jew whose image of Jews and Judaism was borrowed from the non-Jewish world. As Stuart rightly points out, later writers have usually evaded an import clear to Herzl's contemporaries who considered the play an insult to Jews. As Arthur Schnitzler scolded him in a letter, quote, There was a time when Jews were burnt at the stake by the thousand. They had learned how to die, but for all that they were not allowed to live. He concluded, There is a lack of strong Jews throughout the play. It is not very true, as you suggest, that all ghetto Jews were either despicable or despised. There were others, and it was precisely those whom the anti-Semites hated most. Referring to Jacob, ashamed and humiliated because he had once walked out of a duel when his father suddenly became ill, Schnitzler counseled Herzl, quote, The Jew with the wounded sense of humor does not satisfy me. Give him somewhat more inner freedom. Herzl depicted, through Jacob, what a Jew could become. For Schnitzler, Jacob was pathetically intent upon redeeming himself in the eyes of the Gentiles. Aspiring to become the, quote, noble Jew, Jacob's self-image had become hollowed out. He had lost the freedom of self-definition. Jacob's obsession with his presumed cowardliness was his struggle with the taint of Jewishness. Traits that among Christians would be imputed to them as individuals, Herzl imputed to Jews as Jews. And he goes on, this is kind of fire here. Herzl's Jewish contempt ran deep. In November 1894, just after completing the new ghetto, he attended services in a synagogue in Paris, probably for the first time since childhood. Physical revulsion overtook him as he gazed upon the congregants with their, quote, bold, misshapen noses, furtive (laughs) and cunning eyes. Jesus. Uncomfortable with Jewish traits, Herzl filled his plays and novels with blue-eyed blonde women. One exception was Miriam, the dark-haired Jewish beauty in Herzl's novel, Altneuland modeled after his sister who had died in adolescence. Nevertheless, Herzl commented in describing her, she cut no poor figure beside the tall, blonde Englishwoman. Jeez. What is okay, his brother-sister so, stuff? Like, mm, it's just like, yeah, yeah. Ben yeah. Shapiro and his sister. Um, uh, <laughs> maybe, but Herzl's anti-Jewish sensitivities surfaced, indeed sometimes exploded, well after he had become the keeper of Jewish sovereignty. He would employ terms such as, quote, Jewish vermin, mauschel, against his Jewish detractors. I think maybe in a second we'll talk about his mauschel uh, essay, uh, which uh, was described by some historians as an anti-Semitic rant um, that, yeah, I guess mauschel does mean Jewish vermin, right? Uh, I think it just means like, yeah, like vermin or something. But yeah, certainly it means German. Little mouse, little mouse. 
Yeah, like, certainly it means the Jewish vermin in, uh, you know, this text. Uh-huh, uh, it's certainly yeah. the, the suggestion. Uh, yeah. So this is interesting. So this is actually, he says here, Mauschel, Herzl's hostile peace on the Rothschilds after they had spurned his pleas to finance Zionist diplomacy was an anti-Semite's dream. To Herzl, Rothschild was Mauschel, a classic Jewish type rootless, unburdened by loyalties, practiced in the arts of manipulation. Mauschel, quote, secretly incites opposition against those in power. Isoros. Basically, I yeah. mean, basically, this is like a Soros fever dream. Never long in one country, he very quickly, quote, gives lessons in his new patriotism. He corrupts art, very Soros. Uh, he corrupts yeah. art by patronizing it with an investor's eye. Intelligence has, in him, no depth or profundity. It is all cunning, cutting corners, moving on the fringes of the law. His emotions are botched and contemptible. When others feel pain, he feels miserable fright. Pride becomes in him a mocking grin. Lacking settled self-esteem, he is obsequious in defeat, arrogant in victory. Mauschel is unredeemable, dogged by a biological fate, quote, as though, at some dark moment in our history, some inferior human material got into our unfortunate people <laughs> and blended with it. Jesus. Yeah. <clears throat> wow, okay. So he had, like, a deep contempt for, like, uh, both Hirsch and Rothschild at various points. Like, he was dependent on them, but he also, like, had these, like, lavish fantasies about, like, this is a, a good example. And, like, the idea they didn't understand art was, like, one of his, like, go-to critiques, right? He says, uh, interesting popular, fe- like, you know, again, just kind of starting off with, like, a list of something that's going to exist in, you know, the promised country that's to come. Popular mm-hmm. festivals of an artistic nature scattered throughout the country in such a manner that masses do not always converge on one point. For that way, crowds only feel unhappy at festivals. Of course, there will also be national festivals with gigantic spectacles, colorful processions, etc., e.g., on the foundation day of the state, perhaps also on the anniversary of Glion. Baron Hirsch, who will appear as the great rebel immediately after I have made an agreement with the Rothschilds, I must handle with sovereign amiability. Flatter him, all right for me to do because I no longer need him. You are a clever and good person. I liked you extremely well from the start. We must reach an understanding. I shall make it up between you and Rothschild. We have to stick together now. Then the Sursum Corda left up your hearts. Responsibility before people in history. Finally, threaten him with fanatics to whom I shall denounce him. <laughs> this exodus is to the earlier one as the present day scientific exploration of the Witwatersrand goldfields is the adventurous exploration of Bret Hart's Californians. Wow. What? Bret Hart. Uh, wow, that's a deep yeah. cut. Okay, so yeah. he has visions of manifest destiny are inspiring yes, exactly. him a little bit. I guess he's saying that like the early Californian gold rush was like, you know, kind of haphazard. And now mm. this is like a new scientific technocratic exodus. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Guard against an overestimation of myself. Arrogance and folly if the project succeeds. If it does not, writing will help it get help me get it off my chest. There are details which I cannot tell you yet, because at this moment I do not know if you're going to be my friends. You see, you can only be my friends or my foes. There can no longer be anything in between. Yikes. Yeah, he has a sort of list of things like, First stage, the Rothschilds. Second stage, the midget millionaires. Third stage, the little people, i.e. wide publicity. If it comes to this stage, the first two will rue the day. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he, you know, he goes, he the really Rothschilds like, have... Yeah. He's like a MAGA, MAGA man, uh, yeah, basically. He, 
he sounds like that guy uh, who did that Titanic video almost. Like, the Rothschilds have no idea how endangered their property already is. They live in a phony circle of courtiers, servants, employees, paupers, and aristocratic spongers. It is a solution because I satisfy all. Poor men, rich men, workers, intellectuals, governments, and anti-Semitic people. Um, well, he's aware of that. That anybody who wants the Jews to, like, pack up and leave uh, is also going to support the, oh, we'll get to that later. Um, But, yeah. Yeah. You know, he actually uh, says, you know, if the Rothschilds join us, the first doge will be a Rothschild because a doge, I guess, is going to be like the head of state, I guess. Um, My God. Uh, I will not and never (laughs) shall be a doge for I wish to secure the state beyond the term of my own life. (laughs) Like, yeah. So he's saying, like, you know, I can't be a doge because then it will tie the state's existence too much to my personality. However, he does. I just want to read, you know, I think there's one, there's two more parts of this one to read. The first one is his vision for the doge's coronation. And the other one is like his, like, I think, which vindicates your point about uh, his like deep seated anti-Semitism, which is his self-confessed like original plan for solving the Jewish question. So I think, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is his vision of uh, the Do- the Doge's coronation first, which I think is just like great <laughs> and like just worth reading. On the trip to the Grand Prix, outside of the way back, the main features of the Doge's coronation and of dueling occurred to me. This is also the part where he talks about the need for dueling. When I thought that someday I might crown Hans as Doge and address him in the temple in front of the country's great men as Your Highness, my beloved son, I had tears in my eyes. That is not how how it went. The procession, which starts from the Doge's palace, will be opened by Herzl Carassiers. <laughs> then come the artillery and the infantry, the officials of all ministries, deputations from the cities, the clergy, finally the high priest of the capital city, the flag with a guard of honor composed of generals, the Doge, and here the procession attains its symbolic splendor. For while all are marching in gold-studded gala dress, the high priest under canopies, the doge will wear the garb of shame of a medieval Jew, the pointed Jew's hat, and the yellow badge. A yellow pre- badge? Really? Like, well, I guess the idea is that, like, he is, like, you know, reclaiming that. Like, okay. basically, like, that's going to now, so, yeah. yeah, like, become, or maybe it's, like, a thing where, like, he kind of starts off in this outfit, and then he, like, triumphantly, like, as Rips part of this, off, like, like, whole, like, Superman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. Like the Star but, of David Superman logo, basically. Yeah. This is um, very, okay. Yeah. Behind the doge, there will be a chancellor and potentates representing foreign countries. The ministers. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, there's actually going to be a ghetto, like a ghetto set built that the procession is going to march through. It's like called like the, the, the hall of the diaspora or something. It's like this, like, you know, like ghetto Disneyland where okay, it's like, like a museum reminder of tolerance of, uh, yeah or the park. museum of like how like shitty diaspora Jews are <laughs> like yeah <laughs> um but how they so anyway filth, behind the doge, like yeah exactly yeah there will be a chancellor and potentates representing foreign countries and ministers and generals etc the diplomatic corps provided one already exists the council of ancients the senate the parliament freely which the his father would be the first senator he mentions the parliament, freely chosen deputations from the professions, the chambers of commerce, the attorneys, the physicians, etc. The artillery and the infantry will bring up the rear. Yeah, so he he writes, which is kind of sad in light of what happened to his son. My punishments for suicide? For an unsuccessful attempt, permanent confinement in an insane asylum. For an accomplished suicide, refusal of an honorable burial. Uh, I need dueling in order to have real officers and to impart a tone of French refinement to good society. 
Dueling with sabers is permitted and will not be punished, no matter what the outcome, provided that the seconds have done their share toward an honorable settlement. Every saber duel will be investigated by the dueling tribunal only afterwards. A matamor, a braggart who seeks an easy mark and picks out weaker opponents, may be declared as ineligible for further dueling by the tribunal if it can be proved that he was the offender. If he has inflicted serious injury, he may be referred to the regular criminal courts and sentenced according to the common criminal code. Interesting. Importing um, that French sophistication of uh, saber duels. You know, it's funny yeah. we talked about how this depiction of like Muslims always having like swords and like scimitars, yeah. but like who's really obsessed with swords here? It feels uh, like Herzl yeah, is so a big sword. At, like while you were doing the liberal enlightenment, I was studying yeah. the blade. Like while you were studying the, I was the buying Talmud Dogecoin. and the Torah, I was studying the blade. Yeah, exactly. I'm so paranoid about Dogecoin uh, now. Was it made by Israelis? That's uh, it is spelled the same way, right? Like D O G. Yes. Yes, yeah. it is spelled so the same way. Doge um, Kingdom. Uh, I don't know. I th- but I think that Dogecoin, like the idea of the Doge, didn't originate with the coin. It was like before that. You know, it was like a meme. Uh, yeah, it was a of, meme. Like, look at this Doge. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, just, it's one of those. It's like kind of like the Werner von Braun's uh, book about Mars colonies having like Elon. <laughs> yeah, as like true. their governors, and then yeah, but like Elon Musk has a like. On the one hand, he does like his, I think, like grandfather, great grandfather was named Elon. So he has an excuse, but also his family was like a bunch of fascist technocrat people that probably like love Werner von Braun. So it gets a little little... less, but like Doge had been used as like a title before. Like it was Uh like the Venetian uh, Dogeate. Gotcha. Yeah. Like uh, I think there might have been other Doges. The word doge originates from the Latin word dux, which translates to leader or duke. Lord or duke. Yeah, yeah, dux. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Um, Yeah. All right. But yeah, to your point, uh, there's this, like, very early on, and I don't even know if he's telling the truth about this, but the fact that he would, like, say it is something. So his original idea was, okay, this is, you know, he goes on, he says, blah, blah, blah. Something could be done through a medium of the press, I said. And then I unfolded to uh, Baron Leitenberger a plan for a popular paper combating Jew hatred, a paper to be directed by a Simon Pure Gentile. However, the Baron thought my plan too complicated or too costly. He wanted to fight only on a small scale against anti-Semitism. Today, of course, I'm of the opinion that what seemed adequate to me at the time would be a feeble, foolish gesture. Anti-Semitism has grown and continues to grow. And so do I. I can still recall two different conceptions of the question and its solution, which I had in the course of those years. This is really something. About two years ago, I wanted to solve the Jewish question, at least in Austria, with the help of the Catholic Church. I wished to gain access to the Pope, not without first assuring myself of the support of the Austrian church dignitaries, and say to him, help us against the anti-Semites and I will start a great movement for the free and honorable conversion of the Jews to Christianity. Free and honorable by virtue of the fact that the leaders of this movement, myself in particular, would remain Jews and as such would propagate conversion to the faith of the majority. The conversion was to take place in broad daylight, Sundays at noon, in St. Stephen's Cathedral, with festive processions. I feel like Theodore Herzl mm-hmm. just wants a big parade, and like he doesn't care like what, like how it happens. But like, uh, ha- like, like some other know. historical figures, he loves really big rallies. Uh, yeah, he, he's all about it. Um, but yeah, go on. Yeah, that's uh, a great plan. Um, so yeah, with festive processions amidst the pealing of bells, not in shame as individuals have converted up to now, but with proud gestures, and because the Jewish leader would remain Jews, escorting the people only to the thresholds of the church and themselves staying outside, the whole performance was to be elevated by a touch of great candor. 
We, the steadfast men, would have constituted the last generation. We would still have adhered to the faith of our fathers, but we would have made Christians of our young sons before they reached the age of independent decision. Was this what he was thinking when he didn't circumcise his son? Um, uh, it might have still been in this period, honestly. Yeah. If not before. After, well, it was yeah. only two years ago, like before, you know, he started his whole campaign, right? So, uh, but we would have made Christians of our young sons before they reached the age of independent decision, after which conversion looks like an act of cowardice or careerism. As is my custom, I had thought out the entire plan down to its minute details. I could see myself dealing with the Archbishop of Vienna. In imagination, I stood before the Pope. Both of them were very sorry that I wished to do no more than remain part of the last generation of Jews and sent the slogan of mingling of their races flying across the world. As soon as I had an opportunity to discuss the matter with them, I intended to win over to this plan the publishers of the new free press. From Paris, I had previously given them some advice, which to the detriment of the Liberal Party in Austria, they did not follow. About a year before the socialist drive for electoral reform became acute, I recommended that the Christmas editorial should suddenly demand universal suffrage. In this way, the liberals could regain the solid ground they had lost among the people and the intelligent elements of the working class. Subsequently, the agitation for electoral reform reached my publishers from the outside, and their stand on it was not a felicitous one. Anyway, so yeah, that's his plan. And yeah, uh, yeah. surprisingly, he, actually, oh, right. that was mentioned in the like Canadian biopic of Herzl that I watched, where and, and it came out very weirdly, like out of nowhere, where it's like dramatizing him talking with his friend, and it's like, now I have it, I have the solution. And they're like, oh, like you have the solution to all anti-Semitism, Theodore, really? Then he goes off about like, I see a vision of like in St. Peter's Square, like with 10,000 Jews, like all like swearing our conversion. And then by a vanguard of Jews converting, it will like kind of take the heat off of the sort of cultural separation between Christians and Jews. And I don't think the movie uh, emphasizes that he would not convert he just sort of says this and then like and then it moves on to like but then he like saw the dreyfus affair and it radicalized him like that movie presents the the incorrect thing that like it was all about the dreyfus affair when it probably was the anti-semitic mayor of vienna like a little bit later that actually sort of caused him to turn towards zionism but also it's funny that like he says that the leaders, presumably including him, would not convert to Catholicism, but I'm pretty sure, you know, from the other stuff I read, that he was confirmed, I think because it was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he was confirmed Catholic, which actually makes him sacramentally more Catholic than me, uh, because I was never confirmed. <laughs> so, like, wow, he doesn't need to convert to Catholicism because he's, he's a confirmed, he's a confirmed, confirmed Catholic. Confirmed is really far, technically. yeah. That's, I mean, I guess back then it sounds like they did it more like bar mitzvah age, like 13, whereas mm -hmm. it's more like 17, 18 now, or like when I, I, I got old enough to be like, no, fuck that. Like, I don't want yeah. that shit. Um, you had to go to classes and everything, but even, I mean, I don't know if back then it was every single person raised Catholic. Like, I assume probably, yeah, like m the vast majority of them did get confirmed, but so did he. And then he also celebrated Christmas and basically was like very uh, almost like practically a Christian, though he still identified kind of ethnically as a Jew. But that that's about it. Like besides sort of, I don't know, his bloodline or whatever, like he had no connection uh, and actually was raised more in the the kind of majority Catholic faith. So, yeah, and it's just a weird thing, like that, and then pivoting to, like, political Zionism. It's definitely the kind of thing that, I mean, that's still kind of an assimilationist 
idea, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a very it's a, actually an extremely assimilationist idea that a segment of the population is going to have to convert it's in order to like get the anti-Semitism to stop. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, so then he pivots like hard into the other direction, like not long after kind of a I don't even know how much he kind of publicized that particular theory or if that was more in his diaries and you know he didn't really yeah like, i guess it didn't pub- go anywhere that's at the what time I yeah but i guess afterwards I, I have the impression that he understood that these diaries were going to be read eventually yeah oh definitely yeah. at least after der judenstadt came out um yeah i think and he started to blow up like he his patreon started going up and he realized yeah. that he was a real influencer now so uh yeah yeah actually on that tip of kind of like mass movement stuff uh this, this essay i was reading from uh, about reevaluating herzl uh, kind of gets into some interesting uh things here i just want to read a little more let's see where is it okay so continuing uh jewish contempt moved herzl powerfully <laughs> <laughs> the historian Karl Shorsky uh, has suggested this by a different route. As he points out, the rise of political anti-Semitism was part of the mounting tide of mass politics that eroded liberalism's brief political ascendancy launched when constitutions were granted in Austria and Germany. The, quote, dry rational politics of Austrian liberalism now gave way to the abrasive, strident, and irrational tones of mass politics. The political power of the masses, a force realized by liberal parliamentary institutions, had turned against liberal trusteeship to more congenial alliances. Stressing his exposure to the new politics as he attended the trial of the anarchist terrorist uh, Ravachol and socialist mass meetings, Shorsky highlights Herzl's fascination with mass politics, a point ignored by those fixated by his concern with anti-Semitism. Herzl's dispatch on the Ravishal trial expressed a lingering admiration for the terrorist, hmm, interesting, who had discovered, quote, the voluptuousness of the great idea and of martyrdom. Similarly, <laughs> modern nationalism evoked for Herzl, quote, the joy of sacrifice and the readiness to die for an idea. Bismarck had aroused the German people, quote, become sluggish in peace because he had understood that war was the lever of politics. The lust for great sacrifices evoked by war, not liberal eloquence, had stirred Germans to action. Herzl was fascinated with, quote, the archaizing uh, or like archaicizing nature of modern mass politics with how flags, symbols resonating to the collective unconscious had unleashed the energy and dynamism of the masses. Uh oh. Herzl's encounter with mass politics teased him with its possibilities. The habits of minority survival had left Jews bereft of heroism, strangers to self-sacrifice, all cunning and calculation. But Jewish history possessed a powerful store of archaic memories, able to stir the Jewish masses. Herzl's famous dictum, if you will it, it is no fable, emblazoned on his novel The Jewish Future, Outneuland, very likely, uh, Old Newland, yeah, very likely refers to Bismarck's accomplishment. Jews might still be marshaled for a, comparable, for a comparable goal if they could shed their skin, rising to the level of Christian achievement. Hmm. William McGrath has documented Herzl's involvement in the pan-German movement as a student in Vienna. Shaped by Wag- Wagnerian and Nietzschean influences, German student nationalism was a rationalist and anti-liberal. 
Railing against, quote, the morality of the stock exchange, students embraced a new aesthetic symbolic politics that would remake prudent and calculating liberal man in the image of the Ubermensch, heroic, self-assertive, full of powerful and spontaneous passions. Hostile to liberal economic egoism, pan-Germanism preached regeneration. Herzl broke off his involvement when Schoenerer's uh, influence made anti-Semitism a cornerstone of student pan-Germanism, but it is easy to see that Herzl's early pan-Germanism shaped his later perception of the role of Jewish nationalism. That's a very interesting paragraph, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it does kind I mean, of like call to mind, yeah, like the parallels like in the sort of political tendencies of that time. I mean, it makes you think of like Nordau himself, you know, and like his idea of like degeneration that became like so popular with like fascist movements later on mm. so yeah you definitely can see the convergence there i mean there were a lot of symbol like, the power like of subconscious that. symbolism and, yeah. like, and flag. I mean, certainly... he was obsessed with flags so like that was like, one of the first things i think in the movie at least it presents him with like going to baron de hirschen's like i need a flag sir and he's like he blows him off but then very quickly yeah. i mean a version of the modern israeli flag was like well adopted. it seems like that's like his big obsession like reading his diaries like that's what he is most excited about like not any like the practicalities like of uh exterminating a bunch of people even though it's a necessity like a necessity of what he wants to achieve but mm. or at least uh mass expelling them it's like the pageantry and like the mm -hmm. symbols and oh, yeah. like the yeah, theater of the, it all the pomp and like, circumstance yeah the yeah, stage he's, a, he's of, literally uh, a theater kid he uh, is. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Or, you know, a visionary, like, Hollywood director or something like that. Like, he's... Uh, yeah, man, I can see, like, Spielberg, weaver. like, making... Because I think Spielberg is, like, a big a big Zionist, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he definitely has... Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, I think, given by this archive and stuff, I think to a definitely to a certain extent. I also remember that movie Munich from the 2000s, which, like, I definitely saw it a few times, but not in years. And, like, I remember at the time being, like, oh, an interesting kind of, like... It has a, it's a little bit of like a both sides kind of movie, a little like, but I think maybe if I went back today and watched it, I'd be like, no, this is still pretty fucking Zionist. But like, like it, I think it, you know, like the main character kind of like wrestles with like, wait, are we as bad as like the terrorists, you know, like uh, by going around like assassinating all these like uh, PLO guys in Europe and blowing up like their families. Like it sort of plays delicately with like that kind of thing. And even like, slightly tries to humanize uh the palestinian terrorists like a you know in the the olympics thing like a little bit it still was an era where i felt like people even if they were zionists like maybe there was a liberal side of it kind of trying to reach towards like maybe like we can one day we can realize that like we're all humans or something like that that i feel like is not like that movie would not be made even uh as, as cautious as it's like whatever critiques it has are in kind of 2010s or like contemporary Hollywood, it would almost be seen as like, you're making like apologies for Hamas, like by, you know, making this or something like that. But anyways, but he would be an interesting figure because this guy is all like vibes based basically. And he's like, you could see like a Daniel day Lewis, uh, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. With, uh, yeah. Theodore Herzl. I feel um, like you'd probably want to cast like an actual Jewish person to play Theodore Herzl, like in today's climate. I think but, Oscar I Isaac, if he grew a huge beard, <laughs> Oscar Isaac could do it. Um, I um, think definitely, but I mean, actually Oscar that, like, Isaac was yeah. uh, more, I think he signed a ceasefire thing. So 
Unless it's like a kind of maybe a complicated portrait of Herzl. No, I feel like it would it. have to. It would be like the most like you know like what kind of movie about theater Herzl would be made. Um, like the Golda Meir. I could see a good one. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could. I could see like, a good movie about theater Herzl, but I, I, you know that like the movie that was made like wouldn't be good. 